I'd like to begin this morning by thanking God for the opportunity that He's given uh, to be with you this morning, to be able to share from God's Word, and also to be able to share from what God is doing, uh, not just in my country, but different parts of the world. Let me begin by introducing my family to you, uh, my wife Mai, and our two daughters. Uh, Kim Kim is now 15 years old, and Rahel is 13 years old. Just take a look at my wife, and you're wondering if she's from India. Um, she's from the northeastern part of India, from the state of Mizoram. It's a state uh, where God moved in powerful ways about 125 years ago. Uh, from nobody that was a Christian, the whole state became a Christian. That's the only state that I know in the whole world where it's a hundred percent believing Christian. Everybody going to church on Sunday, praising and worshiping the Lord. And um, I, I, I said in the last service, and I want to... This is a little difficult for me, right? Doing the same thing twice over. But I, said, but I said, one of the things that I'm going to be doing is that I'm going to be throwing things about India that would catch your imagination, that would, would cause you to spend some time praying for India. I suspect that many of you don't know this. The government of India says that India is 3% Christian. Most people in Canada don't know that 3% of India is larger than the population of Canada. So there are more Christians in India than there are Canadians on the globe. So when you get to heaven, <laughs> you've got to contend with a lot of guys like me. So I want to say welcome to the real world. Um, you know, it's such a joy to be able to come and share with you from God's word. It's been a joy to get to know your pastor. And in the last service, uh, we were time bound, right? Pastor said, this service, no problem. Take as long as you want. Uh, so, so just in case uh, I keep you longer than I should have, he's the one that you need to contact at the end of the service. Um, our theme for this particular missions conference, from the whole church to the whole world, when your pastor sent me that particular theme, I began to spend my time in prayer. And the more I spent my time in prayer, the one thing that God just kept burdening my heart with is that if this world is going to be reached with the good news of Jesus, it has to be that the whole church hold hand with one another in the hope that this world will hear meaningfully the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church in Canada, the church in India, holding hands together for the glory of God. Let me tell you a story that I think is amazing. It's a story that just thrilled my heart when it happened. We just left the Cary Baptist Church, and after we left the Cary Baptist Church, we'd moved out to a to an area of town uh, that we were not familiar with. This was far away from Kerry Baptist Church. And one of the challenges that we had was that our daughters needed a tutor in the Hindi language. In an Indian school, you learn three languages by the time you get down to class 10. And so here my daughters, they, they're not, they don't know... Uh, they struggle with Hindi because their mother is a Mizo. She speaks Mizo at home. So the girls don't have too much of Hindi at home. So we're looking for a Hindi tutor. I go down to this Hindu school in our neighborhood and I ask the principal, I said, would you be able to recommend for me a Hindi teacher that will teach my children? He recommended to us one of the most awesome people. Her name is Mrs. Shashi Agarwal, great lady. She loves my children. And the first day when I took the children to go and meet this lady, we walked in, just the warmth of her love and just her concern for her kids said, this is the place for our children. 
But as we walked into that house, one of the things that struck us was the number of idols that were all over that house. This was a lady who comes from a higher class Hindu home, an agarwal, a lady that deeply was into idolatry and the worship of other gods. As we walked into her life, we began to become friends with her. And one day I said to her, Mrs. Agarwal, I see a lot of these pictures on the wall. Can you tell me who these people are? And so she said, oh, that's my daughter. She lives in Calcutta. That's the other daughter. She lives in Calcutta. And that, my, that is my son, my only son, Manas, and he lives in New Zealand. The moment she said he, he lived in New Zealand, I started to talk to her about friends that I had in New Zealand. So we spent some time talking. I went off. I came back the next day with my daughters and Mrs. Agarwal said, are you going to come and pick up your children or will my come up and pick the children? I said, ma'am, if you want me to come, I would. She said, yes, you need to come back because I have something very important to talk with you. So I go back and I sit down and I say, yes, ma'am, what do you have to say to me? And she says, I spoke to my son last night and I told him that I am teaching two girls, Hindi, and these girls' father is a pastor. Now, this lady didn't even know what a pastor was, right? This man is a pastor. And she says, her son said to her, if he's a pastor, he is God's messenger to our house. Now, I'm saying that's really strange, right? That's really strange that I get into this Hindu home and a son is saying to this mother that I am God's messenger to this particular home. She continued, she said, my son has given you a secret message and I'm going to bring that secret message for you. She went off to her computer and on a piece of paper, she had scrawled these words, Isaiah 40, 28 to 31. She said, what is this message? And I said, well, Isaiah is a book in the Bible. That's chapter 40, verses 28, 31. Now, that was an easy passage to remember, right? If he'd given some tough one, I wouldn't have been able to think about it. But that's a passage that talks about them that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. So I was saying to myself, now, this is strange. I'm sitting in the midst of all of these idols saying, this is strange. And I'm saying to myself, I'm sure God is working in the life of her son. So I say to her, Will you give me your son's email? I want to write him a letter. She says, no, no, no. You give me your email. I'll pass it on to my son. A couple of days later, her son wrote us one of the most beautiful emails. He went down to New Zealand about four years ago. The moment he got down to New Zealand, Salvation Army reached out with the good news of Jesus to this young man. This young man, confronted with the hope that is in Jesus Christ, asked the master to be his Lord and Savior. Over the next six months, he worked with his wife Preeti on the issues of salvation. Six months later, his wife Preeti comes to the saving grace of Jesus. Now they come together week after week in the church. They are praying, saying, God, please take somebody to the house of Manas' mother in Calcutta, Mrs. Agarwal, so that she can hear the good news of Jesus. And now God is saying to me, don't ask me why I took you out of Cary Baptist Church. So here we are in the house of this lady, 15th of January this year. Shashi Agarwal asked Jesus to be the Lord of her life. As the church in Canada becomes faithful here and faithful in world missions, great and wonderful things will happen. As you reach out to that Indian who is in your neighborhood with the good news of Jesus, that is going to have an effect back in India. The whole church coming together to reach the whole world with the good news 
of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I want to just place before you an overview of what I want to do over the next three sessions that I would be speaking at this morning, tomorrow evening, and, and day after tomorrow evening. I want to talk about why the church need, why the whole church needs to come together to reach the whole world with the good news of Jesus. The first thought that I'd like us to consider, which I want to talk about this morning, is the magnitude of the challenge. The task before us is a huge task. And if you as a church are going to say, no, 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 we're going to go it all alone. Or if my church in India is going to say, no, 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 we don't want to have anybody working with us. We want to go all alone. We would never be able to do what Jesus wants us to do. I want to talk about the magnitude of the challenge. Tomorrow as we come together, I want to talk about the mandate that Jesus sets for us. I want to look at the model of Jesus. And some of us would possibly go away being pleasantly surprised. Because the model of Jesus looks so different from the model of my own ministry. The model of Jesus looks so different from the models that I set for my own life. The magnitude of the challenge, a mandate from Jesus Christ, and finally we want to talk about the marks of my commitment. What am I going to do having listened to all of these things? Am I going to make a decision? The marks of my commitment. I just pray that you would track with us down these three sessions and I pray that God would speak to your heart as he's speaking to mine. Open your Bibles, would you, this morning to our text of the morning, uh, Matthew chapter 9. This is a very familiar passage of scripture. Have me read for you from verse 35 down to verse 38. Matthew chapter 9, I want to begin to read at verse 35. I'm going to read down to verse 38. Like I said, this is a very, very familiar passage. Uh, I don't think there are too many people here who haven't heard this passage before, but let me read it for you. Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Like I said, this is a very familiar passage, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to try and understand this particular passage in its context. As you open the book of Matthew and begin to read, you read about the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And then the next couple of chapters talks about the early life of Jesus Christ, his baptism. And then you have Jesus choosing his early disciples. And then you come down to chapters 5 to 7. And chapters 5 to 7, the world sees a new authenticity. The world sees a new teaching. The world sees one that teaches with authority. And if you were one of the disciples of Jesus, you sat down there, Matthew chapter 5 to 7, and you heard Jesus talk about the Beatitudes. You heard Jesus preach that great sermon. And if there were telephones in those days, you were possibly calling your mother back and saying, guess what? This has been the most awesome retreat that I've attended in my entire life. If there's a speaker that you have to have at your next convention, it's this man called Jesus Christ. Boy, the way he spoke. The Pharisees, they just darted from the place. This was incredible teaching. People couldn't sit there if they were, if they were living, living a double standard life. Boy, this was awesome. 
So here are the disciples. They have just been enamored by the amazing teaching of Jesus Christ. And then you come down to chapters 8 and 9. And now they are enamored with the authority of Jesus Christ. He is one that has authority over disease. If you read that particular passage, he heals the lepers. He heals a lady that has been sick for 12 years. And the disciples of Jesus are seeing things they've never seen in their life. This is awesome. This is powerful. And the disciples of Jesus are so excited. They don't want to miss a moment of being with Jesus, right? On the one hand, his teaching is authentic teaching. On the other hand, the demonstrations of his ministry are demonstrations of authority. He has power over demons. He speaks and the demons leave people and run away. And guess what? He even has power over death. He raised a person back to life. Now I'd like you to imagine the disciples of Jesus again picking up the phone. They're making so many phone calls. The phone bills must have been flying sky high, right? They're calling all of their friends. Guess what, man? We saw this person come back to life. This is incredible. And in the midst of all of that excitement and that thrilling thing that's happening, Matthew records for us verse 35. Because verse 35 is a summary of all that's happened. Listen to verse 35. He says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news, healing every disease and sickness. Now that's a summary statement of all that's happened from chapter 5 down to chapter 9. Jesus did all these amazing things and now there was a huge crowd that was around Jesus. And the disciples are saying, man, this is the place to be at. Right? This is the place to be at. There's a huge crowd of people. Now let's see what new thing Jesus is going to do. And as they look at Jesus, the disciples turn to look at Jesus. What do they see? They see two things. Number one, they see their master's heart. And number two, as they keep looking at Jesus, they see their master's hope. And that's going to be what I want to share with you this morning. The disciples of Jesus, they look at Jesus as a huge crowd of people. And the first thing they see is that they see their master's heart. Listen as I read for you what Matthew says. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. I'd like to challenge you to try and read just this section from several versions. That's all I did. I just picked up several versions and read several versions. And so the next few words that I'm going to put on the slides are words that I picked up from different versions that I read. Jesus says, I mean, Matthew talks about these things as he talks about the heart of Jesus' compassion. First of all, he says, as Jesus looked at the masses, his heart was weeping for them because he saw them as those that were harassed. And you know something that the disciples of Jesus could almost immediately understand? The picture was pretty simple for them. Here was a shepherd who'd taken out his sheep to find pasture, and suddenly the shepherd had gone away. And guess what happened when the shepherd had gone away? A pack of wolves were attacking the sheep. Now Jesus looked at the masses of people and guess what he saw them? He saw them as those that were being attacked. He saw them as those that were being harassed. He saw them as those that were vulnerable. And I'd like you to take a look at your world today if you haven't looked at your world recently. Your world is a harassed world. A few years ago, in fact about three years ago, God did something 
that was new in my own life, in my own journey with Jesus Christ. I'd been deeply into church planting, being in the villages of India, and into our church walked a man from International Justice Mission. And he came to see me at the end of the service and he said, I want to ask you, are you a pastor who is concerned about justice issues? And I said to him, you've got to explain yourself. I mean, I'm a simple guy. I know how to preach. I can go out and tell people about Jesus. But what are you talking about? He said, I want to ask you, are you and your church concerned about justice issues? I said, what do you want us to do? He said, we are involved in saving girls out of the bondage of the sex trade. How old are those girls? The youngest that we saved, five years old. What happens to those girls? When a girl is kidnapped from her home and brought into the brothel, five years old, for the first five to six days, she gets raped 30 times in a day. Because they want to break her very resolve in life. They want her to believe that there is no more hope for her. She is no more going to be able to get out of this living hell. They break every resolve in this girl. So that they can bring her under their subjection. And I said to this man, I said, what do you want me to do? He said, I want you to do two things. Number one, will you ask your church to pray? And I said, I'll do that for sure. Number two, he said, we go out to rescue these girls. Would you send your church people as independent witnesses? They need to be there when we rescue these girls so that they can go to the courtroom and say, yes, I was there when this girl was rescued. And I said, we do it. So for the last three years, we've been praying and sending independent witnesses. And then about a few months ago, one of the guys that works for IJM name is Vic Lacey. Vic used to work in the United States as a federal investigator working on undercover drug, uh, drug kind of activities. This man comes to me and shares with me a story that just tore my heart. He walked into an Indian police station, talked to a policeman, and he said, Sir, I have five girls locked up in this brothel. I have evidence about these girls being there. Would you come with me? We want to go out and save those girls. The policeman says, who cares? Just five girls. There are five million that are having problem. I am not interested about those girls. Vic pleads with him. He says, don't you have a wife? Don't you have children? Please, sir, will you come? Finally, the policeman very reluctantly goes out and they save the girls. When they save the girls, the policeman is feeling really good on the inside because he's done something good. So he calls Vic a couple of days later and he says, you know, I'm thinking about those girls. I bought some chocolates for them. I'd like to go and visit them and give them those chocolates. So Vic takes him along and they go down to the government aftercare home. They come down to the aftercare home and the man stands outside the aftercare home with tears in his eyes. And he says, I will never save another girl. Because the aftercare home run by the government is worse than the brothel. And as Vic shares this story, breaks our heart, and we said, God, what do you want us to do? So we put up our hands again. We said, we don't know what to do, but we'll have an aftercare home for these girls. So the aftercare home is in repair stage right now. January of 2010, there would be the first Christian aftercare home in West Bengal for these minor girls to come and find peace in Jesus Christ. But you know what I want to tell you? This is a harassed world. Stop and think about it. Can you imagine 
the, the state to which this world that has been created by God has fallen. You know, when I talk about a five-year-old being violated, most of you shake your head in disbelief, but that's your world. And that's the world that Jesus is looking at. And there are tears in his eyes because he sees those wolves attacking his sheep and there is nobody to protect them. He sees this world as a harassed world. The second thing that I, I recognize from this particular passage is that he sees this world as a helpless world. You know, one of the things that we take for granted so often is the kind of help we have. The support we have in the church. What an awesome privilege we have to belong to the, to the fold of Jesus Christ. It's an awesome privilege. I can travel anywhere in the world and meet people who know Jesus Christ. And it's an awesome privilege. It's a wonderful thing to be able to meet with you. It's just an incredible thing. The world outside doesn't have that. The world outside does not have the guidance that the shepherd can give them. The world outside does not have the guidance that comes from the church. The world outside is a helpless and a vulnerable world. Without the guidance and the help of the shepherd and the body of Jesus Christ. You know, I read a story um, some time ago told by a great missionary of North India. His name is M.V. Varghese. This man standing at the, 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 the banks of the Ganges. Early in the morning, he saw a young lady walking out from the Ganges and she was crying uncontrollably. And she came and she sat down on the shores and she was crying uncontrollably. So Varghese went and sat beside her and he was trying to find out what had happened. And in his own recollection, he, t- he talks about this story. He talks about how this lady whose name is Isla takes her little baby who's just a few months old. And had just walked into the Ganges. She'd walked as far as she could. Baby that's alive. And she offered the baby to the river Ganges. And she comes back and she is crying uncontrollably because she deeply loved her baby. And she's telling Mr. Varghese, you know, because of all the problems in our life, because of all the difficulties of our life, I thought I would offer this baby to the river Ganges. And as Mr. Vergie sat beside her, he shared with her about the love of Jesus Christ. And this is what the lady asked. She said, why didn't you come half an hour ago? Why didn't you come half an hour ago? My dear friends, I pray that God would open your eyes that you would be able to see a helpless world. Jesus saw a helpless world. Jesus saw a world that was harassed. Jesus saw a helpless world. Thirdly, Jesus saw a hurting world. This is a world that is hurting because of sin. This is a world that is bound up because of sin. This is a world that is not able to free itself from its sin. And this morning as I speak about the world, maybe there is somebody sitting here who is bound in sin this morning. And maybe Jesus needs to set you free. This is a world that is bound in sinfulness and they want to break free. A young man, he was in class 10. His mother came to see me one day. His name is Prithvi. His mother said, we found our son yesterday totally drunk on the streets. Can you help this young man? So my wife and I walked out, spent some time with this young man. And we said to him, Prithvi, come and stay in our house for one week. 
So he decided to come and stay in our house for one week. He came for one week and the one week turned into three months. He stayed in our house for three months. We took care of everything in this boy's life, his food and everything. And all we did is that we lived our lives out before this kid. Those three months were the most incredible months in Prithvi's life because he found Jesus as his savior. He was freed from the chains of sin. He went back to class 10, topped his school in class 10, finished his class 11 and 12, topped the school there, finished his engineering, now works in Sydney as one of the managers in IBM Sydney. Every time I have a need, pick up the phone and call this kid and he take care of my needs. But you know what made the difference? He was freed from his sins. He was so bound in his sins. And when Jesus came into his life, he was freed from his sin. As Jesus looked at the world, he saw the world hurting because they were bound in their sins. And this morning, as you walk down on the streets of Canada, you see a lot of people that are hurting because of sin. And here are the disciples. They're looking at Jesus and there are tears in his eyes. He's moved with compassion as he looks at a harassed world, as as he looks at a helpless world, as he looks at a hurting world, and as he looks at a hopeless world. This world without him is going to an eternity of destruction. People don't like to talk about hell these days, right? We try to find ways to talk around hell. But the more I look at the scriptures, the more I recognize it's as simple as I learned in Sunday school. I don't know why I should complicate it. The Bible is pretty clear. If I do not submit my life to Jesus Christ, I am going to be lost in eternity. The Bible makes it clear. And as Jesus looks at the world, he sees a world that does not know him. And his heart is moved with compassion because he sees their destiny. He sees that they are bound to hell. I went down to speak at an InterVarsity meeting, sitting right up in front. Just before I spoke, they played a video. And in that video, they did something that is not theologically possible. They brought a man back from hell in that video. He was all half burned. His ears were fallen off. His eyes were out of the socket. Pretty, dirt, pretty terrible scene to see. And the man came to a meeting like this. And he walked right up to the young man in front. He stood at him, looked at him right in his eye, and he said... Why didn't you tell me about Jesus? And the, and the young man in front said, well, I didn't go to Bible college. So he walked up to the man right up here in front and said, why didn't you tell me about Jesus? And he said, because I've been really busy this week. So he walked up to the lady right up in front and said, why didn't you tell me about Jesus? And she said, well, I've been busy setting the worship together. And finally, he came up and stood in front. He looked at the crowd and he said, because... You didn't tell me about Jesus. I will be lost forever. The video finished and they said we have Ashok Andrews to speak. So I went up and I stood in front and I cried. Because I could see in my mind neighbors that I had never even taken an opportunity of sharing Jesus with. I thought of schoolmates that had passed through my lives, we played together, never talked to them about Jesus. I thought about guys that I met on the streets who become good friends of mine, that I never talked to about Jesus. Now Jesus looks at this world. He sees people as those without hope. 
And this morning I want to just tell you that if you are sitting here and you do not know Jesus, your life is just as hopeless as the lives we're talking about. So here are the disciples, they look at Jesus and the first thing they do is they see their master's heart. His heart is broken for a harassed world. His heart is broken for a helpless world. His heart is broken for a hurting world. His heart is broken for a hopeless world. And as they are coming to grips with that, the one who is the hope of the world looks at them. And he almost says, hey guys, you are my hope. But before I get there, okay, I'm, I'm a little stuck on this particular PowerPoint this morning. Before I get there, I want to just place before you, just very quickly, a few realities of our world. Just so that God will open your eyes, that you would be able to see your world. Did you know there are 16,000 people groups in this world? 6,000 of them have yet to hear about Jesus. That's 2 billion people. Never heard about Jesus. Did you know that out of every three people in the world, two are like me, Asians. 70% of Asia yet to hear meaningfully the name of Jesus Christ. Did you know that half of our world lives on less than $2 every day? Did you know that our world has 13 million orphans? Did you know that the 30,000 people starve to death every day? You know, and when I come to this particular context, there's so much of food to eat. And all the time we have to watch our weight problems. And yet when you stop and think about it, 30,000 people die every day because of the lack of food. Just think about this. During this one hour that our service happened this morning, just think about these statistics. 100 1,625 children were forced to live on the streets even before we finished the service this morning. 1,667 children died because of malnutrition. One hour. 115 children forced into prostitution every hour. 257 children often just because of AIDS every hour. Now look at Jesus. Now look at Jesus. He stands there and he looks at this world. And he is moved with compassion. There are tears in his eyes as he looks at this world. And he who is the hope of this world. Turns around to his disciples and says, hey guess what? I'm going to lay my life down for this world. I am the only way, the truth, and the life. But you are my only hope of carrying this message to a hurting world. I am the hope of the world. I will die on the cross of Calvary. I will be buried. I will rise again. And him that trusts in me will have eternal life. But you are my hope. You are the ones who would carry this message to the four corners of the world. You are my hope. Listen as I read for you our text of this morning, Matthew chapter 9. We're reading at verse 37. The Bible says, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is truly plentiful, the workers are few. The first thing that Jesus asks them to do is that Jesus asks them, to look at the harvest. Visualize. And that's what I've been trying to do this morning. I've been trying to invite you to get out of the comfort zones of your little homes in Canada. And take a look at the world. 
It's a hurting world. And this is a world that was created by the God that has redeemed you through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that God wants to redeem others through the blood of his son Jesus Christ. And he wants to use you. And so he says, my church, would you visualize, would you see a needy world around you? I want to ask you, when was the last time? You know, some of you are saying, man, I've not been on a missions team. But I want to ask you, when was the last time you stood on the streets of Canada and looked at people and you cried? Saying, God, I see people who are going to an eternity without you. Warren Wearsby is one of my favorite writers and commentators. He talks about Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee. And as Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee, he looks at ordinary fishermen. He says, come follow me, I will make you. I will make you. Okay, I'll make you fishers of men. Warren Wearsby says, there's a difference between fishermen and fishers of men. Listen carefully. He says, a fisherman goes into the sea and he catches live fish. Now that live fish dies and then we eat it. But fishers of men go on the street. You know what they do? They meet dead men. They introduce them to Jesus and they become alive. That's a world of difference. He's calling you to be fishers of men. But some of you are saying, no, no, no. I want to only be a fisherman. But he's calling you to be a fisher of men. He wants you to visualize. He wants you to see a world that is hurting without him. And I want to tell you, church, if you do not see a world that is hurting without him, you would never be able to be involved in the task of reaching out to people with the good news of Jesus Christ. A man that I can never forget was a man that taught me what it was to street preach. His name is George Samraj. I still remember coming out of Bible college, going down to Bangalore, meeting with this man, walking down on Hutchins Road. It was a busy day. We're walking down on Hutchins Road and all of a sudden, George Samrad's clapping and shouting and screaming. And I'm wondering what's happening. And there's a big crowd that gathered. He pushed me in front and said, share the gospel. And I stood up there in front. My knees were knocking and I was wondering what to share. Well, that was George Samraj. You couldn't stop that man from sharing about Jesus. Anywhere he went, he'd share about Jesus. But you know what? This is George's story. They had two children. Their older son, Jeevan, was 24 years old. He went rock climbing. The man on top of him slipped, fell right on top of Jeevan. Jeevan died instantly. Six days to go for the first death anniversary of Jeevan. Their only other child, Deepa, who was 22, Went to the Sangam River. Never came back home. And yet this man was a man that was just filled with a passion for the souls of men, women, boys and girls. He would pick up the newspaper in the morning. Look at the obituary column. If there was a young man in Bangalore City that had died, a young woman that had died in Bangalore City, he and his wife would go to that house before the end of the day. Because they would want to tell them, we had two children. We lost both of them. Jesus is the only hope. Jesus is the only one who can give you true peace. George and Eva led hundreds of people, literally hundreds of people to Jesus Christ. You know why? Because they were able to see a world that was hurting without Jesus Christ. And I want to invite you this morning, church. I want to invite you, believer. I want to invite you to ask God to open your eyes that you would see a world 
that's hurting without Jesus Christ. His name is Augustine Salins. He used to be known as the weeping prophet of India. Every time he came up to speak, he would just look at audiences and there would be tears in his eyes. When people asked him why he was crying, he said, as I stood up to preach, I could literally see people that were going to hell. And I said, God, I'll do all I can to try and save that person from hell. You know, I pray that God will open our eyes, that we will walk on the streets and see people that are going to hell. Jesus says, I want you to look at the harvest. Visualize. The second thing that Jesus invites the church to do is that he invites the church to agonize. He asks his disciples to pray. The harvest is truly plentiful. I want you to pray. Church of Jesus Christ, he calls us to agonize. And this is something that frightens me every time I come to the West these days. And I was with a bunch of pastors from the persecuted church in Orissa very recently. And you know, after the persecution happened, the first thing that they called, they called for a hundred day fasting and prayer. They only had supper every day, but for hundred days, they skipped breakfast and lunch and they cried out to God. Hundred days. Then I come to the West, I go to churches, I don't say this in a negative way, please don't misunderstand me. I go to churches and in many churches, on Sunday morning, they don't even have prayer. And I say to myself, the children that come to this church don't see the people in the church praying. How will they learn to pray? The church somehow is beginning to say to itself, prayer is not as important as the performances we have to bring to our people. Prayer is not as important as holding the church together and, you know, having a crowd here. Take a look at the New Testament church. The New Testament church was a church where every brick fell into place by prayer. And here is Jesus. He is speaking to his disciples and he says, I want you to agonize. I want you to agonize in prayer. His name is Narayan Paul. He used to be in Calcutta and God called him to go to serve him in the border of Andhra and Orissa. He went down 12 years. He worked in that area. Not one person was saved. 12 years. But Narayan Paul never gave up. He knew that Jesus had called him to go there. He would kneel down and cry and pray on the soil of that place saying, God, one day there will be a harvest here. At the end of that 12 years, God opened the doors for many people to be saved. Narayan Paul's life before he passed away, more than 15,000 tribals came to Jesus because of one man's ministry. I just met him very briefly. But his son has since become one of my most dearest friends. His name is Philip Timothy. Philip works in a place called Srikakulam. Over the last five years, Philip and his team have baptized 8,400 new believers. They've established 140 new churches. And I say to myself, how did it happen? And I know it happened because of Narayan Paul. He just knelt down there and he cried his heart out before God. God, please save this world. When was the last time you prayed like that? When was the last time there was a tear in your eye as you thought of the world? When was the last time you said, okay, I'm not going to have my breakfast this morning. I want to pray for the world. When was the last time you just shut everything down and said, God, I want to pray for my world. Jesus is coming again. And when he comes, he will hold you and me accountable 
for what we did. I pray that some of you would be challenged this morning to say, God, I want to make a commitment. If not anything else, I want to make a commitment to sincerely pray that the nations of the world will be saved. Jesus wants the church to visualize. Jesus wants the church to agonize. And Jesus wants his church to evangelize, to go into the four corners of this world with the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, one of the things that I enjoy is working with a band of guys um, that will plant churches wherever you put them. That's the only thing they know. You know, we run a Bible school. It's not an accredited Bible school. It's just a very simple school. We've trained 166 students who've planted 400 churches, more than 400 churches. That's the only thing that these guys do. You throw them anywhere, a few weeks later, they come back with the church. It's amazing how they do it. I don't know how they do it. I'm the guy like you, right? I went to Bible college, finished, and I come to pastor good church. But these guys, you throw them out, no church, they set up a church. One of our missionaries traveling on a bus, sitting beside a man with a long beard. And you know, he doesn't know what to do but to talk about Jesus. So he doesn't care who the guy is sitting beside him. He starts talking to him about Jesus. And this man is kind of listening with reluctance. But the man listens all right. At the end of it, he says, if you want to contact me, here's my address. A few days later, the man comes back and he has a whole set of questions. And our poor evangelist, because he doesn't have all of the books, has no answers to give. So he says, I don't know, but you can go and meet my boss. So he gives him the boss's number. And so the guy comes and meets his boss, who is, who is our director of ministries, Mr. Tarun Bhattacharya, who is a Brahmin convert. So this man comes along, meets him, and Tarun begins to journey with him. And soon the man finds Jesus as his savior. When the man finds Jesus as his savior, all of us are in for a big surprise because we realize that the man that was led to faith was the Maulavi of the Sajahan Mosque. His name was Abul Kalam Azad. And Abul had accepted Jesus. He went back home and he shared his faith about Jesus. Very bad thing to do, right? They beat him black and blue. They took all of his possessions away and his mother looked at him and she said, it is better for me to look at the face of a pig than to look at your face. Because for for those from an Islamic background, the pig is as low as it can get. Abul disappeared for two years. We had no contact with Abul. We prayed for him often. Tarun and I would cry out to God, God, wherever this man is, please be with him. After two years, he came back. He had exciting stories to tell. Muslims were turning to Jesus Christ. Today, Abul alone has baptized more than 450 Muslims who found meaning in Jesus Christ. A few months ago, he called me and said, I'd like you to come for a baptism service. And I said, you know, Abul, I've been really busy these days. Maybe Tarun can come. He says, no, 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 I want you to come. So I go down to the baptism service, baptizing people. And then this old lady comes into the baptism tank. And he says, here stands the lady who thought, looking at me was better than looking at the face of a pig. I baptize her in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus calls the church to evangelize. Jesus calls you today. Jesus calls me today. Jesus wants the whole church to come together in order that the whole world will be reached with the good news of Jesus. I like telling stories. So let me finish with one more, right? This is a story that's not out of the context of India, but it's a story that challenges me every time I tell it. It's a story that's told by a lady called Christine Tingling, who lived in Fuchao in China. 
She worked at a leprosy mission hospital and into that leprosy mission hospital walked a man one day who was totally ravaged with leprosy. He was smelling and he, he looked terrible and he came into this Christian leprosy mission hospital and he said, is there a place for me? That was the only place that would accept this man. So they took him in and they had him in that particular leprosorium. Every day, this chaplain would come and sit beside this man and talk to him about Jesus. And every time the man with leprosy heard about Jesus, he said, no, 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 nobody can love me. How can somebody love this smelly, ugly looking creature? And every day the chaplain would say the same thing to him. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. He died for you on the cross. He can save you. Finally, one day it dawned upon the man. And he said, Lord, if you love me dirty as I am, come into my heart and be my Lord. And Jesus came into that life. His life was transformed. He was new. A couple of years later, the man was dying. Leprosy had really eaten into his body. He was in the last stages. The same chaplain was sitting beside him. The man, very little strength, pulled the chaplain close to himself and he said, will Jesus forgive me? And the chaplain was taken aback. What are you talking about? Will Jesus forgive me? The chaplain said, why are you asking? He said, because in these two years, I only led 14 people to him. Will Jesus forgive me? I only led 14 people to him two years. What about you? I'm going to ask you to close your eyes, bow your heads. We want to pray together. As every eye is closed and every head is bowed, I want you to just spend a moment to look at the heart of Jesus. A heart that was moved with compassion. A harassed world, a hopeless world, a hurting world, a helpless world. And this morning Jesus speaks to you and he speaks to me and he says, you are my hope. You are my hope. Would you just spend a moment quietly to respond to that message this morning and then I'm just going to turn over the time to the worship team. Just a moment of silence. Just respond to that message and then we'll have the worship team singing.